So let's begin this evening by uh, touching in, uh, tasting our uh, primary awareness functioning. aware of seeing, aware of hearing, aware of the body, Aware of mind, maybe thinking happening. Maybe even being aware of uh, the awareness itself. Aware that all of this experience is arising and being known. Being known to you. So what is it that's knowing this experience? Well, it's not limited to the body because the body is within it, no? And you can know the body as a whole. And similarly, with the uh, vastness of this room, the visual field being known Known to what? Well, to, to you, right? Because otherwise it would not be happening for you. Then there's this question, what is this you? If there's this primary knowing which, in which all of the experience that you tend to call you, your thoughts, your feelings, your body, your sensations, your moods, your emotions, is arising, uh, arising within this knowing, this spontaneous knowing. And everything you hear, see, smell, touch, taste, all of this also arising within that. So when in a moment we uh, allow ourselves to rest in this knowing, 
to relax into it. And to not be clinging, grasping, trying to arrest ourselves on any of the objects within it, any of the content. Not needing to anchor our identity in any experience in the moment. There's just this Well, notice for yourself. When you're not uh, thinking about the past, when you're not thinking about the future, who are you? Where are all these aspects of your identity that you normally think of as me? Your job, your relationships, your roles, all the various roles that you play in your life. all your plans and fantasies about the future, when we're not anchoring our identity in any of these, what's left? And when there's no clinging in this moment to any aspect of your bodily or mental experience right now. So this knowing, it's always present, and we can notice it. It holds whatever's happening. And the way you know that is because if what's happening is being known, that means it's holding it. So this knowing, this wake awareness, it's not even located anywhere. Because everything's arising within it equally. So if you look for it as a thing, you don't find anything because it's not a thing to be found. It's, it's sort of what allows all these things to be found, all of this to be happening, this manifestation. It's the underlying, invisible underlying uh, 
I almost want to use the word element, although it doesn't have any solidity to it. The base of all experience. But not noticed, because uh, we notice the objects. That's what we focus on, everything arising within it. We, that's how we relate. Uh, so I wanted to start tonight with this pointer, just as a reference point. Yeah. There's a reference point you can always touch into. Yeah. You can uh, ask yourself, am I aware? And whenever you ask yourself that, the answer is always yes. <laughs> and then even just tracing back, you know, see if you can trace back the, the uh, you don't even have to trace back, just, you can uh, maybe relax back into this knowingness. Okay, so before we get too far out there, actually it's not out there, it's just right here. Very simple. Uh, but, yeah, we don't rest that way very often. You know, because there's so much compelling stuff happening on this phenomenal level. So how do we get, you know, in that moment, in this moment of just uh, resting in this knowingness, uh, our ordinary sense of identity is, uh, we're not locked into that. You're not locked into an idea of who we are. not even locked into a body, although the body is here. We're not defined by any of the experience arising in awareness. Not defined by it. This is your nature. It's your Buddha nature or your Oh, this is your true nature, your this more primary identity. But we don't reside as that very much of the time. We get hooked into these little identities, these narrow identities, these little senses of me that feel confining, they feel a little askew, they feel limited, they feel partial, they feel incomplete, they feel separate. And then there is dukkha, that sense that Andre was talking about the other night, not quite right. 
So tonight I'd like to, within this pointing, talk about how these, how we get hooked, how we uh, fall out of this um, I don't know what to call it, this, and into these, you know, me, rushing around, trying to complete everything. You feel the difference? (laughs) Sometimes acting things out is, it's the only way to communicate it. So this is different. Well, you know, the Buddha, here's sort of one way of... So the Buddha taught that in every moment of sense contact, contact at the eye door, ear door, nose, tongue, tasting, body, and mind. Mind is the sixth sense in the Buddha uh, Buddha's system, thinking. That's the mind door. Every moment of sense contact... Uh, there is a feeling tone that arises. And that feeling tone is either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. So Buddha said, said this, we think, and I'm repeating it, but all of these things are to be checked out, so you can check it out too. So every moment of sense contact, there's a feeling tone that arises called Vedana in the Pali. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it is, the Buddha thought this feeling tone was so important that he made it one of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is the four foundations of mindfulness is basically a way of categorizing all experience so that we can be mindful of it. You know, a systematic way of practicing mindfulness of all our experience. So four categories and one of them is this feeling tone, which suggests that the Buddha thought it was kind of important. It's our response to this feeling tone that determines everything. What we do with feeling tone. So we generally in the same way that we don't notice this more primary awareness, you know, we don't notice this feeling tone level. You know? So we have a habitual responses to it. When the feeling tone is pleasant, we want to get more of it. We want to get close to it. We want to identify ourselves with it. When it's unpleasant, we want to get away from it, or we want to annihilate it. 
or we want to just push it away. When it's neutral, we space out. So you can think about examples of this for yourself, you know. You see, you see somebody, just a moment of sense contact, you know, you kind of like the way they look. There's a pleasant feeling, tone. You see somebody, you kind of don't like the way they look, there's an unpleasant feeling, tone. Some of you have, may have had this experience here. You don't like the way somebody is, usually it's something very, like you don't like the way they're, you know, adjust their seat. You don't like the way they put on their socks. We don't like their socks. <laughs> you, know? you see the socks, feeling tone, unpleasant. When it's neutral, the mind just does a little translation. Boring. <laughs> Nothing here to see. Let's go to La La Land or just make something else happen. Very interesting realm to start paying attention to. Just an aside, most of our experience is neutral. So not knowing how to be connected to neither pleasant nor non-pleasant experience explains why we're absent so much of the time. It just doesn't register. So this drives much of our behavior, our thinking, our reactions, even our identities. So the, the, you know, there's a sort of description of how the cycle of rebirth happens in the Buddhist texts. Rebirth, you know what that is. But here you can think of rebirth even on a moment-to-moment level. I won't read it, I'll just paraphrase it. So it's a chain. And I'll just say what it is. Uh, I'll leave out the first links because they're a little confusing. So there's uh, contact, the senses, then there's feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That feeling tone gives rise to craving. Craving either for the experience or to get rid of the experience or to just space out about the experience. Yeah, that leads to clinging, some kind of reifying our relationship to that stance, which leads to being, which leads to birth. I'll explain this, what this means in a minute, which leads to, what does birth lead to? Well, you might think birth leads to living and all these wonderful, (laughs) you know, you think, oh, birth is beautiful. But in the texts, Birth leads to old age, sickness, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. How about that? (laughs) So, (laughs) 
So be careful what you wish for. So what is this process? You know, how does this work? Well, let's explore it a little bit. I'm going to try to think of an example now. There's so many different ways into this, but I'm trying to think of one that's relevant to you all here. Uh, Okay, so you're in the dining room. This is just an example from some of the interviews. Yeah, Common theme. You're in the dining room, and the person in front of you is doing something. They're taking too much tofu. (laughs) They're not taking enough tofu. They're breathing on the tofu. (laughs) You know, they're, I don't know. And you have a judgment about it, you know? The judge, you realize you have this judgment about it, and there's a feeling tone. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Unpleasant. Actually, the unpleasant happened right when you saw the breathing on the tofu. Unpleasant. <coughs> you know? And then you sort of uh, didn't want to feel that judgment yeah? because you've been at this Buddhist center <laughs> where we're talking about accepting things the way they are and loving kindness and metta, you know, all these beautiful things. So naturally you're a terrible person now. <laughs> so is unpleasant judgment, unpleasant. Yeah? And then you sort of try to push it away. You know, and in that pushing away, you sort of this is the, so there's the contact with the judgment in the mind door. There's the unpleasant feeling. There's the craving to not have it be there. There's the clinging to I am judging. Then there's being. Oh. Then there's birth. I am a judger. <laughs> I do this. You feel the dirt? See how that happens? Birth. Whoa, me. I'm a judgmental. Then you are the judgmental one. And you have to live out that incarnation. You have a different body, notice? All of a sudden, oh, I'm judging. You know, before you were just like this. Now you're... Oh. So you're born into a new body. And now you have to live out that incarnation until it's over. Old age, sickness, and death. And it does change because, you know, the next person you see, you know, puts extra tofu on your plate and you think, oh, what a bodhisattva. And then you love them. (laughs) And then you are, you know, you are yourself a bodhisattva in your mind. (laughs) So this is birth into an identity. Yeah, you're identifying with what? The judgment. So, similarly, you could just notice that if you were, if mindfulness were really strong in that moment, and there was acceptance and spaciousness within it, which sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't, depending on the moment, maybe you just see the judgment and you notice, wow, what a wicked judgment. 
you know? And you're just, oh, judging. But you're not averse to it. You're not scared of it. You're not, you're not taking it to mean something about me. Then there's no birth. It's just, yeah? Or maybe you notice the judgment, you notice the unpleasant feeling tone. And you just stay with that. That unpleasant, oh. But then it doesn't give rise to this identifying, oh, me, I'm judgmental. No, you're just staying with the feeling tone. Unpleasant. Mm. The, the cycle then doesn't happen. Yeah? So this kind of birthing is happening all the time. Yeah? It happens when you're having a pleasant sitting. You know, There's a feeling of pleasure and spaciousness and openness. And... This contact, pleasant, but you don't notice pleasant. You just think, you know, wow, I'm a great meditator. (laughs) I got it down. You know, and notice how you're sitting now. So that happened very quickly, huh? Pleasant sensation. It's kind of, ooh, like it, craving, clinging, and then birth. I am a great meditator. Me. And then you're a great meditator for a little while and you live out that incarnation. You know? <laughs> you get very reverent. You know? Uh, you know? Then you go outside and your shoes aren't there. You know? Who took my shoes? So that's over, that incarnation. You're in a new one. Where are my shoes? <laughs> this is happening all the time. And, and what's it based on? It's based on this momentary experience of just some momentary experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We're having some incarnation based on this process. Hmm? Uh, and it can cause great conflict. You know, it really gets narrow fast. I'll tell one story that I, I tell frequently. It was just, for me, this really crystallized it for me. I don't get into a lot of, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I don't get into a lot of conflicts anymore out there in the world. <laughs> Meditation works. I used, used to be different. But I'm on the bus in San Francisco. This was a couple of years ago on the bus just being there. A uh, woman gets on the bus, on the phone, sits down right, right next to me, and she's yelling into the phone. Like, you know, one of those conversations. And so loud. And I just got totally wrapped up in it. You know? What is she doing? You know? I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, does she have n- no awareness that there are other people on the bus? You know? So I got locked into this thing, and luckily I've been practicing for a while. So sometimes when you've been practicing for a while, mindfulness kicks in. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but sometimes it does. So it happened to kick in in this moment. <laughs> and so I asked myself, just popped up spontaneously, what is happening? Because you know, actually when, you're, when you start to get familiar with resting in this kind of a wakefulness and awareness, you start to feel when it narrows. You know, when, you, when it narrows quickly and then something kicks off in your mind like, oh, 
something's going on here. It's not like your default mode, you know? So, so you recognize, oh, something's happening. Sometimes you recognize it. Yeah. And so I said, what's happening here? And it just went right down, it's just the mind of this by itself, right to the feeling tone, unpleasant in the body. You know, so here's this incredibly loud volume right next to me, but I'm just with this unpleasant. Very interesting to notice what happened next. This very narrow, exclusive relationship that I was in with this woman fell away. And there was the bus, and there was the scenery going by, and there's this body, there's this unpleasant feeling still there, and there's this woman, loud noise, contact with the ear. But we were no longer in relationship. She never knew we were in relationship, but we were. (laughs) We were going steady for a while. And all those issues had come up already. Yeah. So, but based on this unpleasant feeling, I'd taken birth as the, the righteous, angry person. You know, it was so freeing. You know, I had been almost ready to like say something to her before. That would have been really bad because of the place I was coming from. You know, when you're coming from that place, it's like there's a conflict already happening. Yeah, it's too... But afterwards I realized, oh, first of all, I didn't need to say anything after that. It was so liberating and interesting too, because it's like, oh, wow, that's great. But also I realized I actually could say something now and it would be coming from a very different place. You know, it's not... You know that difference? Yeah. Um, another example of this is with fear. I used to practice with this a lot when the, the neighborhood I used to live in because it was a little bit of a dangerous neighborhood. And you know, a lot, fair amount of robberies and stuff like that, so you had to be mindful, aware. And I would notice, I sometimes had to come back very late, I'd be walking, and I would notice fear arise. It was very interesting to play with noticing when I identified with the fear, you know, and became the afraid one. So fear rises, not mindful of it, and then contact, sensation, craving, clinging, birth. You know, now birth in this body and the afraid one. When you're the afraid one, everything's kind of scary, you know? And also you feel like you're the center of other people's attention. (laughs) But it's also very interesting, because I had a lot of, I had a fair amount of fear would arise at various times. It's also interesting to notice that when I was really present, mindfulness was strong, fear could arise. Oh, fear. And when it's just known like that, when there's not this, you know, and fear's unpleasant, you know, so there, that sets in that cycle, fear. But when it's just fear with the unpleasantness, 
not taking birth in an identity of the afraid one. Very different. Fear can still be there, but there's a sense of spaciousness. There's also a sense of, a sense of having other aspects of the mind present. You know, when you're just the afraid one, that's all that's available. Same when you're the embarrassed one. Never had this one? You say something that's a little embarrassing. You're in a group. You thought it'd be a great thing to say. <laughs> but when it comes out, it just came out a little different than you had, you know. Than, so you're the embarrassed one. And so you're like, oh. There's not that much available. You don't have like your, I got it all together. That, that identity is somewhere else. Not very accessible. Yeah. But when there's fear and you're just with the fear, oh, there's a lot of room around it. Fear, but you're not taking birth. Yeah. So you have your mind. You still have your mind available. Similarly with embarrassment. Feel the embarrassment. And this, I remember I had this very clearly happen to me after a long retreat where I was in a group and I said something, which I thought was perfectly fine, and somebody shot me one of those looks and said something sarcastic. You know that kind of thing where you feel like you're back in middle school? You know, like, it wasn't like, duh, but it was something that had that flavor. And I just felt the surge of embarrassment. But the mind was very steady. And it was just like, oh, embarrassment. But I was fine. It wasn't even that bad. You know, I didn't, and I didn't get into this whole thing of like, you know, revenge, Somebody shames you, and then you're like, <laughs> it's just not happening. So it's just very great to notice that the difference. Uh, so this is not to say that you should not take birth. I will not take birth. I will rest in the awareness. I think birth already happened. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so don't do that. Actually, taking birth over and over again is very useful. Why? Because you start to see that these little identities are very momentary. They're not who you are in this ultimate way. They're very momentary. When you see that you have 25 births in 15 minutes, or whatever, maybe longer, you just, when you're in each one and you're really locked in it, it feels like that's just the way it is. You know? You really are just a, just a bad, judgmental, evil person. Because, I mean, the fact that you're judging people at a Buddhist meditation retreat is evidence of that. <laughs> you heard it from me. <laughs> so, <laughs> but when you're in that, it feels like that's just the total truth. The total truth. But when you see that you've taken birth over and over again, you start to get skeptical of these incarnation. You don't take them as so ultimate. So you can kind of roll with them a little bit. You know, like, you don't need to not take birth. It's like, you're okay, I'm the embarrassed one right now. 
This is what it's like. Yeah, I've been here before. And you know, okay, this will just be an incarnation. It'll change. But it doesn't have that ultimate me-ness. And that's where we get so locked in. It's this identification as me. This is me. And, you know, you've had all these different kinds of me's, so which one is really you? But we don't notice that normally because we actually don't pay attention in a sustained way long enough to notice how variant all these me's are. Really? Try to make something consistent out of that. What kind of me do you get there? Nothing. You can't. So notice both when you take birth and you're in this little identity. Notice it and notice how it lives out and notice when it changes. You can notice the end of it. Notice when it's not there anymore. And notice when there's awareness and there's no taking birth. There's just knowing, oh, this is fear. It's not me mining it in a moment. It just happens sometimes. Oh, or when it's just sadness. It's just sadness. It's not me and my sadness and what is sad. I am just, I'm just a sad sack, you know. I'm a bummer to be around. Who would want to be around me? So if you're human, you have sadness. Sorry to break it to you. But it's the identities we build around these things that become problematic. It's what changes it from just nature. You know, nature is not problematic. Somebody said in an interview today, I realized how perfectly imperfect it is in nature. There's just this peace. Because you don't look around at nature and be like, that twig is ugly. You know, that tree is just, should straighten out. You know, you just don't do it. Because you say nature, you have an intuitive wisdom around nature. You don't. But we do, we somehow abstract ourselves out of nature and we do some other thing. You know? So nature, you are nature unfolding. You have all of these states that arise for you, all these moods, all these emotions, all these sensations. It comes with having a body, mind states. So it's the building of an I, me, and my out of it that causes a sense of limitation, even if it's a good state that's happening. Like, you know, that great meditator state where you you know, that's very limited. You're a little cut off, you're a little full of yourself, you know. Also, it's a little unstable because you kind of feel that. You know it's going to change at some point, but it feels a little unstable. So what we're doing all the time is we're trying to anchor our identity in something that's unstable. St- momentary experience, momentary states. We're trying to do the impossible. You cannot anchor satisfactorily a me in what's unchangeable, uh, what's changing. And even as Anushka was saying, even if you get the greatest version of me, it's a little unsteady. You feel that. It's like trying to, you know, you want to rest in a bed that has only two legs or something. You know, it's like, I just want to rest. And it's like, clunk falls over. You can't rest like that.
So how, how can we rest? You know, how does resting happen? It happens as we start to loosen our identification and belief in these little me identities. These versions as, as ultimate. We stop investing so much in that because we see for ourselves how, not intellectually and not just a little bit, you have to see this a fair amount. You know, because unconsciously we, we just invest in what we believe in, right? It's true with money, it's true with energy, it's true with time, it's true with, we invest ourselves in what we actually believe in. So we do believe, you know, that these little momentary things are really where we need to anchor because we keep investing in them. But as we see, as we have this insight, seeing again and again the changing nature of experience, momentary nature of it, and the momentary nature of these identities, and also how limited they feel, how um, unsatisfying ultimately, how incomplete. As we see this more and more, we naturally stop investing so much of our belief in them and we start to relax a little. We're not looking for a resting place anymore. And ironically, it's this not looking to rest, which is the ultimate rest. It's not seeking to rest on anything as an object. As I was saying before about objects, it's all this tangible, phenomenal world. We tend to rest our identity in the phenomenal, tangible, because we think that's where it's at. But as we relax our grip on it, we start to just rest in non-abiding, rest in being itself. We're not... That's restful. It's a relief. This is a direction. It's not like you should be resting you know, at all. So we're grasping. We're grasping onto experience to try to hold it. Oh, let's just keep this, keep this. I... Uh, when I was in college, this example comes to me, it's like very clear. When I was in college, at the school that I went to, uh, in order to graduate from this school, you needed to pass a swim test. I don't know, maybe some, a lot of schools have that. I thought it was the weirdest thing. It was some old tradition. You have to be able to pass a swim test. You have to swim across a pool and back in order to graduate. So what they do is, if, when you're a freshman, it's like the f- one of the first things you do. You get in a bathing suit and you line up with this huge line of freshmen and you have to jump in the pool and swim across and back and then they check it off and you don't have to worry about it. If you can't do that, if you don't know how to swim, you tell them and then you have to take swim classes. I don't know what this has to do with higher education, <laughs> but that's the way it was. So I'm waiting in line. Luckily, I could swim. I was waiting in line and I saw ahead of me this guy, also in line, bathing suit, and he just looked really agitated. 
and he was sort of like, you know that look, he's sort of nervous and fidgety and almost had that look like he was sweating. You know, it wasn't hot, but he was sort of. And I, it just, I it caught my eye and I said, something, this, something's going on here. And he was getting closer and closer. And the closer he got, the more agitated he looked to, the, to being his turn. So I was really looking at him. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but something. So when you do the swim test, you jump into the deep end and you swim across. So it, it, it dawned on me just soon before he got there that he didn't know how to swim, but that he was going to try anyway. You know, Maybe he was so afraid of swimming, he didn't want to do the class. I don't know. But he got to the edge of the pool. I thought, oh no. He jumps into the pool and he starts flailing. But it was like he was really trying to grab on to the water. Yeah? And he went down fast. It was weird. I mean, it's not hard to float, but he was grabbing and struggling. He went down. They had to get, fish him out. And it's actually a very analogous to what we're trying to do when we're grabbing onto this changing experience, you know, at trying to make an identity out of it. Where can I land, me? You know, it doesn't work. But like swimming, when we actually let go of our attempts at grabbing on, we can float. We can swim around, and you can even enjoy it. It's just a metaphor, it's a teaching story about what is it when we're not grabbing onto anything? Not any aspect. Of, our experience is still happening, all of it, but we're not locating any, me as any of it particularly. I'll just read a couple things from the Buddha. Um, let's see. So here are some things the Buddha is naming that we can anchor our identity in. We tend to. Philosophical opinions, tradition, virtue. I'm very virtuous. You know, I have good conduct, good sila. I listen to the Dharma talks. I behave ethically. Can you feel? It's fine to behave behave ethically. It's wonderful. But can you hear the birth in that? me. Yeah. I behave ethically. Philosophical opinion. We're very attached to our opinions. Tend to be. Yeah. Uh, so as the Buddha says, it's not by any philosophical opinion, nor by tradition, nor by knowledge, nor by virtue and holy works, not even holy works, can anyone say that purity exists? nor by absence of philosophical opinions, or by absence of tradition, by absence of knowledge, by absence of virtue and holy works, either. So this purity that the Buddha is talking about is not even about doing good. And it's, about, it's not about not having anything, like, I don't have any opinions. I don't have any philosophical views. Yeah, I don't have any conduct. It's not that either. 
Having abandoned these without adopting anything else, let one calm and independent not desire any resting place. You ever noticed even you're having a discussion with somebody and you take some position and it kind of feels good? Because it feels like me. I got this position, especially if you think you're right. (laughs) You know, sort of feels righteous and there's sort of an identity there. It feels substantive. Yeah, we love that. Here's another way we locate ourselves. One one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior. Any of you had that happen in the course of the retreat? That ranking system? Internal ranking? Uh, Locating oneself in relation to, oh, I think I'm probably doing better than a lot of the people here. I can tell from the questions. Uh, Or, you know, I am definitely the worst meditator in this room. I I cannot do this. I really can't. And uh, I must be the only one who's really not getting it. Maybe some other people, but I'm really not getting it. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. It's some defect. And I kind of always knew it was there. <laughs> and now I really know. You know. Haven't you had both of these? <laughs> or some version of it? Like when you're doing well, it's like, maybe it's not I'm better than everybody, but maybe it's like, I should be a monk. I should renounce the world. <laughs> you know? So that ranking, or even neutral, even equal, the Buddha said. You can even locate, hey, we're about the same. It's a way of locating yourself. Yeah? It's, it's unstable. It also creates suffering and limitation. I'm just going to keep reading. I just like the way it's said here. An accomplished person does not by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant. For he, she, is not of that sort. Not by holy works nor by tradition is he led. He is not led into any of the resting places of the mind. And then this last section, just for humor. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) It's in there. It's not that much like straight humor from the text, so you got to take it when you can get it. It's good. Um, I'm going to read another uh, poem. This is from Chuan Tzu. Uh, And it also gets at this thing of like um, identity and personalizing things. You know, how when when there's a sense of meanness 
everything, our relationship to everything is different. Uh, And same with other people, in their sense of you did this. You did it. It's different. So this is called the empty boat, and it's just a section of it. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again, and yet again, and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you. No one will seek to harm you. So let's just sit for a few minutes. May we continue to look deeply into our own experience. May we see things as they are. May we see pleasant as pleasant, unpleasant as unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. May we be awake to each of these changing conditions, awake to nature unfolding, awake to ourselves, all of our experience as nature unfolding. May this clear and direct knowing free us for the sake of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.